prompting word for us. And thank you, Catherine and uh, Mary, for um, giving us a vision for ESL. So let's pray together before we spend time in the Word of God. Holy Spirit, fall afresh upon us. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds and give us understanding that we may hear your words and understand what you are saying to us today. For without your revelation, we're just re receiving information. So guide us and direct us that we may respond in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin this morning by sharing something about me and my husband, Charles. One of the things that Charles and I are now enjoying as empty nesters is that we get to discover things that we never got to do when we were busy parenting small children. Now we get to sleep in on a long weekend. I don't mean to rub it in. We get to go on long hikes, and we discovered, we discovered Netflix. I know Netflix has been around for a while, but we just got it recently as a gift from our son. And we started to discover watching Netflix series. Now a series is a little bit different from a movie. Because instead of saying a movie, it's like you sit down for say an hour up to three hours max where you get the full story in one sitting, the beginning and the end. In a series, the story is prolonged over a number of seasons and each season is divided into episodes. And you get to immerse yourself in the story and the narrative for a longer period of time as the plot develops with more detail. So that's the difference between a movie and a series. Now because there's so much to watch and absorb, we have to limit our time wisely because it's so easy to be tempted to binge watch. And I don't want to come to church with eye bags because I am now an empty nester. I get a full eight hours of sleep. Now this, this you know, amount of things to watch, this drives me crazy. Because I have this need to want to know what's going to happen next. I want to know the ending, right, like now, today, not tomorrow. Even if there's like four seasons, I'm like, I want to know how this is all going to end, like now. I want to know how the story will end. Because you see, for me, the end is so much more important than how the story develops in each episode. And this drives my husband crazy because he is patient, but his wife is not. So we compromise. This is what we do. We, in order to determine which series we're going to watch, we fast forward to the last episode. Someone's laughing. To the last episode of the last season just to see how it will all end. The conclusion. And if the ending is fulfilling, then we choose to watch that series. <laughs> Do any of you do that? And I'm guessing by the laughter that there are some people who do that. You know, in the first service, they said, no one do does that. And so I said, well, you're all good Christians. <laughs> no one fast forwards in the 9 a.m. You see, Charles and I, we like series where peace and justice is the ending note. When order and calm is established after the chaos was introduced in the beginning. So even if there are parts of the story in between that may seem really chaotic and hopeless, because we've already seen the end by fast-forwarding, we hang on because we already know how it's going to end. It will end well. And we keep on watching because the end is what makes it all 
worthwhile. Amen. Right? So as we read our, uh, our scripture passage today, Revelations uh, 21, 1 to 28, as we read these opening verses through uh, Revelation 21, we find ourselves in the final scenes of the entire Bible. This is the beginning of the final scene of the last episode of the last season of the entire redemption story that has been going on for over 2,000 years. Today we get to fast forward to the end because knowing the end really matters. You know what? It does. Because if none of all this is going to have a good ending, then really what's the point, right? Why even get up in the morning to come here on a Sunday? What's the point? The end really matters. So in the last three chapters of Revelation, we get to see and know what is waiting for us in the end. When the inbreaking kingdom of Jesus Christ finally reaches its completion and fulfillment. And what we see in this ending scene is a fulfilling, more than satisfying and fitting conclusion to the historical drama of redemption that began in the book of Genesis first words were in the beginning, right? Now let's compare. It is interesting to, be, to compare the beginning three chapters of Genesis and the ending three chapters of Revelation, so 3-3. Three, three. They are the bookends of the Bible, and there are many parallels and many differences that are just too significant to ignore. So I'm just going to show you some of them. It's not an exhaustive chart, so I'm just going to show you some of them. In the first two chapters of Genesis, the devil is not there. And in the last two chapters of Revelation, the devil is not there either. In the third chapter of Genesis, Satan enters the scene. So this is the third chapter. And in the third to the last chapter of Revelation, that's chapter 20, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and he disappears. So the beginning and the end Genesis and Revelation bookend each other in perfect mirror image. You see that? So Pastor Tim, last week in his sermon, he began by saying, let's begin with the end in mind. That's how we started. And I'm just going to copy and do the same thing because I love to know the ending scene. I'm the fast-forwarding kind of type of girl. So let's begin with this triumphal ending, fast-forwarding to that glorious and good end that was and is in Christ's mind from the beginning and that he is bringing to completion. What is waiting for us in the end? Have you ever thought about that? What's at the end of all this? So this morning, I'd like us to explore five realities that await those who are in Jesus. So let's look at the first reality. The first reality is we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. That's the first reality. So like Ezekiel, who was exiled in Babylon, John was also given a vision while he was in exile in the island of Patmos. Now in a vision, it, now what he gets is a vision that gives us a peek or a glimpse of what awaits us. And John, in this vision, begins this section by saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy 
holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So John begins to describe for us this heavenly vision that's been given, the fulfillment of a promise that God had made for many, many years ago, where this idea of this heavenly Jerusalem that has already been foretold will become the ultimate home of the people of God. Now these are tremendous words when you're listening as an exile. Can you imagine? So let's look at all the things that were said in Isaiah 65, verse 17a. It said, See, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 10, it says something similar. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So as you can see from these passages that we read, the promise that God will create for us a new heaven and a new earth is not an isolated one that suddenly just sort of appeared in Revelation, you know. God has already been giving us glimpses of this end, pointing towards this new reality way before this vision that John got in Revelation. This was something foretold a long time ago. Now, what does this reality mean for us today? It means that the earth that we live in now will pass away. The heavens all around us are not going to proceed into eternity. There will be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, not identical to the old, completely different. That's what new means. The verse also says that there will be no longer a sea, no more sea. We have no idea why this is the case, only that this will be one of the ways in which the new earth will be different from the old earth. It doesn't say that there won't be any bodies of water, because this river that we got to get a glimpse of from Ezekiel 47 that Pastor Tim and Pastor Andrew spoke of, that river of life will be there mentioned in Revelation 22. But there will be no more sea. Now in his vision, John describes this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride. Now one of the things I've never forgotten from the weddings, I've attended many weddings, and I've noticed that every bride is beautiful. There's, I've never seen an ugly bride. If you have, you can raise your hand, but no, no, that's okay. I've never seen an ugly bride. And John uses this picture of this beautiful bride going up to her bridegroom, and he uses the same picture describing the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. This new Jerusalem will be so different from the old Jerusalem. Everything that the old Jerusalem was meant to be but, ne but never was and never could will be in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem will be a place, uh, will not be a place of bloodshed or any division of any kind. There will be no war there, but it will be a place of God's presence under the new Jerusalem. That's the first reality. There's more. The second reality is that we will live in intimate and personal communion with our God. And this is how it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, I'm going to rephrase that in biblical lingo. You can say that God will permanently and forever pitch his tent and tabernacle among his redeemed people. That's what it means when God says, I'm going to live among you. I'm going to tabernacle among you. See, it was God's plan from the beginning to be his, with his people. And that is said in Leviticus. He said, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. And this is what it says in John chapter 1. The word became flesh, meaning Jesus, and made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us. Now God's presence in this new reality will be a reality, and we won't need faith to be with him anymore. Because faith is defined as apprehending all things that we don't yet have in the future. But yet we believe we already have it. We believe it's already ours in Christ. That's faith. In eternity, when we're in the new Jerusalem, when we're enjoying being in the presence of God, the life of faith we live today will no longer be necessary because we will have this fullness of being in God's presence at all times that will no longer require faith because it will be a reality. So the future that awaits us will be a reality and part of this reality in number three, this is another thing that awaits us, is that we will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. I love this reality. Look at what it says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear, not just a tear. Every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that beautiful? Now in eternity, all that causes us pain uh, pain and sorrow will be forever be taken away. There will be no more tears, no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. All of this will be a thing of the past. But notice that this verse adds a little detail, a little, you know, like something, something else. It said that um, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I love it. It could just say there will be no more tears, but there's this added detail that says God will wipe away your tears. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced having your tears wiped away from your eyes. Have you ever experienced that? Or maybe as a parent, you've wiped the tears um, away from your child's eyes. But it is a very tender and a very compassionate act. And what's being conveyed here by the Holy Spirit as John writes these things down is that there's this act of compassion, there's this act of tenderness that God will show his people when he wipes away our tears. Isn't that beautiful? Now in the previous chapter, because we're now in 21, that's Revelation 20, death and Satan were cast away because they were part of the old order of things. Now, yesterday I learned a very, uh, something very scientific when I was preparing for the sermon. I learned that in the new world order, 
the second law of thermodynamics won't apply anymore. You know what it is? I know there's an aerospace engineer here, but, so, but don't raise your hand, because I want to look smart. <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics states this, that the total entropy of an isolated system can never decrease over time. Did you get that? You know what? I had no idea what all this meant. <laughs> like, what was that? So, you know what? I looked it up. I'm standing in front of you. I need to know something. So what does that, what does that word entropy mean? The word entropy means gradual decline into disorder. It is the scientific understanding that all physical matter on Earth is in a constant state of rapid deterioration. Did you get that? See, this is the reason why I go to ESL, so that I can learn words like entropy. You know, I'm going to say the entropy, right? Everything is deteriorating, and it has been like this from the beginning. That's what scientists call the second law of thermodynamics. This scientific law will not apply in the new heaven and the new earth because sin and its effects will totally be eradicated. Therefore, what's it eliminating? Entropy. Isn't that cool? Entropy won't be part of the new world order. And if that's not enough, this is the fourth reality, that we will rest in the sure promises of God. He who was seated on the throne, just note the strength of this declaration in verse 5, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now I want you to note in this statement, um, when it says, I am making everything new, this statement is given in the present tense. Not in the future tense. You know why I know? Because I go to ESL. You know? <laughs> it doesn't say, I will be making everything new. Instead, God says, I am making everything new. I am. He's presently doing it. Which means this work of making everything new, new is going on at this very moment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He makes everything new. He is regenerating. He is restoring. And he is renewing everything now as I speak before you. It's presently going on. Now this restorative and regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, you know when it takes place? It takes place every time someone opens their heart wide to Jesus. This is the same powerful work of the Holy Spirit that Ezekiel gave us a glimpse on when that small trickle of water became this limitless and abundant source of life-giving water. Ezekiel saw how the water in the Dead Sea is made fresh. And if you know the Dead Sea, nothing lives in the Dead Sea because it's full of salt. And then in verse 8 in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, this is what he says. The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh, and marine life thrives. We read in verse 9 that swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. 
there will be large numbers of fish because this water, this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, where the river flows, everything will live. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When this river flows, everything will begin to live. The Holy Spirit is busy reviving that which was barren, that which was dead, into something new when someone comes to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? So I'm going to show you this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has come. God, the new, is here. And it says here um, in John chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within that. The Holy Spirit is going around today making new creations of people who want to be followers and disciples of Jesus, who will be part of the new order. And that new, new world order has no entropy. There you go. I just said that word. That's a new word I learned. Entropy. So even more, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives now and is empowering us to live like Christ, especially, especially in parts of our lives where it seems hopeless and transforming us into that image of Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, verse 6 affirms in the same text, it is done, it is finished, it is complete. The sovereign God and ruler of the universe who declares himself to be, he declared himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, declares this completion and fulfillment, which means if he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the Lord over both ends of history. Genesis and Revelation, and all that is in between. He was there in the first episode of the first season, and he will be there in the last episode of the last season. In fact, he's already there in the last episode of the last season, waiting for his new creation to join him. Now, to those who have trusted and placed their faith in the Son, Jesus, um, they will be given the living water that flows from him, from the temple where the water is flowing that we see in Ezekiel's vision. And we see here, um, notice that when Jesus said this about himself, when he said this about himself, he is actually interpreting Ezekiel 47 uh, river to be the Holy Spirit, referring to how when we believe in Jesus, the Spirit indwells the believer and makes rivers of living water flow abundantly from within. The Spirit, the work of the Spirit unites us to Jesus and renews us with this new life. We become a new creation. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. And you know the Bible is full of beginnings and full of ends. Have you noticed that? We read in Genesis, in the beginning, those are the first words. And then as we come to the book of Revelation, it all comes to an end. The heavens and the earth will disappear, and God creates the new beginning. And there's this new heaven, and then there's this new earth. 
But lest we forget that these beginnings and endings and begin to think they are an end to themselves, right? God says, oh no, oh no, by the way, I am the beginning and the end. It's kind of like when Jesus was talking to Martha after her brother Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Jesus says to Martha, do you believe he will rise again? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe he will rise again on the day of the resurrection when the dead will rise. And you know what Jesus said to her? He said, Martha, I am the resurrection. So lest you get caught up in the study of the end times, itemizing everything, and focusing on parts of God's plan, and looking at them and isolating each one, lest we forget that he, Jesus, is really the summation of all this. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last episode of all the season, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to give us this capacity to understand the depth of that revelation. We are meant to see that the vision that Ezekiel got and the vision that John got are all visions that point to Jesus because this passage is all about Jesus. Now I'd like to conclude by showing you the fifth reality waiting for us in the end. It says that we will live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death. Now this section, verse 7 to 8, it has a promise, and after the promise, it has a warning. And so in verse 7, that's the promise, it says, He who overcomes, he who overcomes, will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And John, in John 11, this is what Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. But the word but that starts from verse 8 introduces the warning in the form of a list. Now if you look at your Bibles, Revelations 21 verse 8, there's a list there. I used to think that this was a list of sins that sends people to hell. I used to think that. But rather, this list describes a lifestyle of those that have rejected Jesus Christ, those that have refused the living waters that Jesus offers. Now, we're not separated from God because of our sins, but our refusal to have our sins forgiven and the decision to live apart from him. Now, if sinners are to go to hell, you know what? They all go to hell because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, verse 23. But the only difference is that we are forgiven sinners and we have accepted Jesus' invitation to drink of him from that river of life. While the other type of sinner are those who refuse to be forgiven. That's the difference. Now hell, because it's mentioned here in verse 8, is the most avoidable reality because God has bent over backwards to make sure that no one ever has to go there. God has bent over backwards to make sure that no one goes to hell. So it is the most avoidable reality. But the sad truth is that there are people, that there are some people who choose to go there by refusing what Jesus offers them. The eternal destiny of those who place their trust in Jesus is so radically different from those who choose to live apart from that authority. Now we just fast forward into the end. 
to see and to know of all if all this is worth it. And what we've seen so far in verses 1 to 8 is an ending that is so much more satisfying than we could ever imagine. You know, this vision of, of heavenly Jerusalem will become the ultimate home of the people of God that has already been foretold. There's this longing in our hearts to know what has already been foretold because God himself is the one that has placed that longing there in our hearts, a longing for eternity. It says there in Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has planted this longing for eternity in our hearts that will be fully and completely satisfied in the new heaven and the new earth. And as we consider this vision that John got of the, of the heavenly city coming to earth, God's and God's intention to dwell with his people and satisfying us with the water of life, we must realize that this vision actually presents us with two radical choices or two radical options for eternity. We get to choose our endings. There's two options how you want to end. You want to go with the way of life, living with God, or the way of death, separated from God. Whatever we decide, God will give us what we want, what we choose in the end, in an irrevocable way, whether it's to live with him or whether it's to to live apart from him. That's the option. That's the choice that this vision is giving us. The end we choose makes a difference in our daily lives because we live our lives based on the ending that we choose. So if we believe this, our lives are going to be lived very differently. And if you pick to be with Jesus, you will find that he is better and more wonderful than you ever hoped or imagined. An ending of eternity with him. Now that is a satisfying